the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and we have two very interesting guests for you tonight. The largest charity in America is now a donor-advised fund. It is Fidelity Charitable, and you'll be hearing from their president, Pam Norley. She'll tell us it doesn't take that much money to set up a donor-advised fund at Fidelity Charitable. Yeah, the mission of Fidelity Charitable is to make giving accessible, simple, and effective, right? So you kind of break that down, Mm -hmm. um, starting with accessible. So for $5,000, you have the ability to, you know, set up your own mini foundation or your own giving account. And then we'll be joined by the CEO of an organization that has been rated the most cost-effective nonprofit in reducing poverty. He is Will Warshower, the president of TechnoServe. They work with the poorest people on the planet, but don't give away anything for free. We're a classic sort of teach-them-to-fish organization. So that's why we don't want to provide the financing we want to provide. Uh, We want to find commercial uh, organizations to do that. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, January 26. The roughly 2,100 billionaires globally own more of the world's wealth than the 4.6 billion people at the bottom of the global wealth pyramid, a report from Oxfam International finds. Rotary International and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have announced a joint commitment of up to $450 million in support of global efforts to eradicate polio. An annual survey reveals adults are sleeping a staggering 47 minutes less than they did in 2018, down from 6 hours and 17 minutes to just 5 and a half hours. Respondents had 105 terrible nights of sleep on average and said they'd be willing to pay $316 for a perfect night's sleep. And finally, don't worry if you swear too much. People who swear like a sailor are more honest and more intelligent, studies show. And that is a damn business of giving news digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Pam Norley right after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. When the Chronicle of Philanthropy ran its annual list of the 400 largest charities back in 2016, many were taken by surprise that the top spot wasn't occupied by an organization like the United Way or the Salvation Army, but rather Fidelity Charitable. It signified that the way Americans are going about their giving has changed dramatically and that donor-advised funds are becoming the preferred vehicle for an increasing number of people. And here to discuss that with us tonight is Pam Norley, the president of Fidelity Charitable. Good evening, Pam, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Yes, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here. You know, there are so many Americans that are connected to Fidelity Investments, either directly or indirectly. I think it's about one in five. Tell us how and when Fidelity Charitable, the first commercial donor-advised fund, got started. 
So Fidelity Charitable is a national donor advised fund, which allows people to use our platform for giving all around the world. Um, it was established in 1991. Uh, Fidelity Charitable is a 501c3, so it's a charity in and of itself, um, associated with Fidelity, just that the services are provided by Fidelity Investments. So we've had that opportunity to, to build this amazing product, but it's been over 28 years, 29 years. It's been a very long time that we've been at this. Um, and donor-advised funds, in terms of popularity, have really taken off just really in the last five years. So for those who might be hearing about this vehicle for the very first time, how would you describe a donor-advised fund? So a donor-advised fund is a tax-efficient savings account for charity. It's a very tax-efficient way to do your philanthropy because you have to take a deduction uh, for the contribution that you make to set up your own account or a little mini foundation with as little as $5,000 if you use Fidelity Charitable. And then you have the ability to give that money out in $50 increments as soon as you've made the contribution. And you also have the opportunity to invest those assets, so potentially adding even more to philanthropy as a result of the uh, having that account. As little as $5,000. Now, does that have to be in cash, or can other assets be used to establish an account? Good question. So most of our donors give us appreciated securities, which is a real benefit because you almost have the doubling of the the benefit because um, instead of paying tax on the appreciation on that security, that can go to philanthropy. So, for example, if you bought you know, Microsoft at $100 and it's now worth $200, mm-hmm. You could put that and donate donate that into your account, and then you'd have the ability to basically give away $200 and not pay tax on an additional $100 of gain. You know, we talk a lot about on this show about um, corporate giving, mm-hmm. corporate social responsibility, uh, them doing more, uh, trying to solve the problems around the world, foundations, uh, the same way. But at the end of the day, it's really individuals who make up the lion's share of giving in this country, correct? That's absolutely right. In fact... Americans gave away four hundred and twenty some billion dollars uh, in twenty eighteen, and about almost three hundred billion of that came from individuals. Wow, yeah, that's a, that's an awful it's lot. It's remarkable. Yeah. Now, are there any rules that stipulate how quickly the funds that have been put into a donor advised fund have to be distributed to a charity or charities? So, at Fidelity Charitable, we require that people be active grant makers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if in fact they have not made a grant. Within three years, we will actually take 5% from their account. Um, we actually have an independent board of trustees who have a separate fund that grants out to charities as well, generally that support infrastructure and nonprofits. And so uh, 5% will go out. If they, in fact, then don't give the following year, we'll sweep the whole account and then grant it out to charity on their behalf. So very active grant making. I mean, fortunately, we have um, – people that are using this vehicle to do a lot of their philanthropy. And so we're seeing, on average, over the last decade, granting rates of between 20 and 24 percent. Now, is that a fidelity rule or is that a stipulation of the way the the whole system is set up? So that's a fidelity charitable policy Mm -hmm. um, that uh, we – but we were established with a policy to grant out 5 percent on an annual basis, but it's far exceeded that. Far exceeded that. Most of the other national DAP providers also have similar policies. Yeah, yeah. So that criticism you hear about people putting money into a donor-advised fund to warehouse it really isn't legitimate. No, it's not – it's not – it's not accurate. Mm Mm-hmm. How many charities does the average uh, account give to? Uh, on average, we have about 10 grants per year, okay. which has doubled in the last 10 years. And again, so much of what we're trying to do is 
you know, meet the donors where they are today in terms of their use of digital, you know, digital for their giving, for their shopping, for almost everything they're doing, they're on their phones. And so we now have the ability to do a lot of our granting through our app, which has, I think, increased the ability for people to be giving more. Cool. Pam, what are people giving to? I mean, you're probably going to give out roughly $7 billion in grants. Now, is this pretty much consistent with Giving USA, the way people give directly to charity in terms of its allocation and distribution? Or, or people who are uh, doing it through a donor advised fund, is it different in any kind of way? You know, it's generally, it's it's similar to the Giving USA. So basically, most of our donors give to religion, to education, mm-hmm. to health and human services. Here in New York City, interestingly enough, the top three nonprofit beneficiaries of the donors for 2018. The first was New York Public Radio. <laughs> the second was, I think... It's I like a, that one, to tell I, you the I, truth. I figured yeah. you would, uh, Denver. And then the second one was, I think it's the Jewish Federation Appeal Organization. Yeah, and the third was, Yeah, and the third was Sloan Kettering. No kidding. So, um, and frankly... We have more donor-advised funds here in New York City than any other city in the country. Mm-hmm. So very generous. So when people set up a donor-advised fund, does that represent the lion's share they're giving or all they're giving? Or what percentage do you think comes out of a donor-advised fund and what part do you think comes out directly? We don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the, the work that we've done makes clear that people are giving in all different ways. Uh, they give with their checkbooks. They give with a credit card. Um, some people have foundations. And then they also have a donor-advised fund. So I think what's happened is people are using and taking advantage of all the different vehicles and ways to give. You know, I thought it was interesting, Pam, that some of your research um, showed that the decision to establish and use a donor advised fund predisposes its holder to value feedback, specifically from the organizations that it has supported. Speak to that and what you're seeing. Yeah, the mission of Fidelity Charitable is to make giving accessible, simple, and effective, right? So you kind of break that down, mm-hmm. um, starting with accessible. So for $5,000, you have the ability to, you know, set up your own mini foundation or your own giving account. Two is simple. You know, it's a very simple experience. We'll, we meet you where you are. You can call, go on the web, use your phone app uh, for granting. So we're trying to be um, make it very simple and easy to use, and we get great feedback on the interface. But the third thing is effectiveness. Like, how do you get joy and feel that you're doing a good job with your philanthropy? Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of uh, work over the last year or so trying to come up with ways for people to be more intentional and inclusive and focused in their giving. And um, we make a lot of tools and a lot of information available. We now actually have set it up that you can actually establish your own mission in connection with your account. Oh, I like that. So that people can come together as a family and think about what they really want to accomplish. And then they can decide which charities they want to give to as a family, as individuals. Um, You know, most people say that charities kind of choose them Mm -hmm. in the sense that something happens in their life or they have a certain experience Mm -hmm. and that results in them, you know, being inclined to give to one nonprofit over another because of what it stands for. But we've been very intentional in trying to get our donors to step back and reflect about what they're trying to accomplish and uh, and to work with the nonprofits to provide feedback and get feedback from the nonprofits in terms of the work that they're doing on their behalf. Right. And it does seem that donors to donor advised funds have a higher rate of volunteerism than the general public. That's what we've discovered. And and frankly, that's the way that you really drive change, right? It's not just your financial resources. It's bringing your time as well. Yeah, you've talked a couple times about technology. So speak a little bit more about that, maybe what's coming up next. But that probably has been the thing that has changed this experience most dramatically and probably is why we're seeing this incredible growth. Talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, so we invested pretty heavily in technology over the last five years, you know, just trying to update the interface, make it easy to use, intuitive, uh, constantly working on our search uh, functionality. I mean, there's 1.7 million nonprofits in this country. We have about – we have them all on our platform, but we have about – 250,000 that generally our donors are giving to on a regular basis. And we want it to be a good experience. So we want them to be able to find the charity quickly, be able to um, then research that charity, look to GuideStar, Charity Navigator, some of the other tools that we have available so that they can do their own due diligence around the charity and not just take it from the nonprofit itself. We spend a lot of time um, getting people to think through how to boost their giving IQ, mm-hmm. right? Like, how can I be more effective? How can I think about this? This isn't just about your friend saying, hey, donate $1,000 to this particular cause. This is about you getting connected to that cause, yeah. giving your time, being more intentional, learning about what the impact that organization has on the uh, on the area that it's focused on, mm-hmm. and then being more involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are some of your recommendations in terms of what people should do? Because, I mean, those are great ideas, mm-hmm. but... How do they get started in doing that? Uh, I would – I mean, our website, the fidelitycharitable.org, is very easy to get to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's A lot of the things are before the login, so you can get a lot of research and do a lot of education. I would tell you that people are more spontaneous in their giving than, you know, than, than maybe we expect that they are. I think you're right. Uh, we wouldn't say that we have a lot of usage of a lot of those tools, but it doesn't stop us from putting it out there because once people start to use the tools and start to see – all the things that they can they can learn about their own giving, they become more committed, more involved, and frankly, they get more pleasure from it. Yeah, yeah right. You know, nobody just wants like to write. Else. <laughs> you don't want to just write a check. You mm-hmm. want to be. You want to know what this organization stands for, and that they're trying to drive change in their community. And you'll also vet these organizations to make sure that they are legitimate. Yeah. So that's a very very important part of the role that we play. So again, in order for you to take the full tax deduction, you are irrevocably donating that money to Fidelity Charitable, Mm -hmm. the nonprofit. And we then, and then you have the ability to make recommendations on where you want the money to go to. And we generally look at three things. One, it has to be IRS approved. Two, it has to be and stand for something that's truly charitable. And then three is there can't be really an incidental benefit. Those are generally at a high level kind of how we do this. But we spend a lot of time understanding who these charities are and whether or not they're real or not. And unfortunately, like in in everything, there's fraud and um, bad actors. Yeah, like disasters. Yeah, disasters is – Yeah, disasters is actually an area where we um, give advice on where money should be given in the event of a disaster because there's been so much fraud over the years. We work with an organization to vet – which nonprofits are on the ground at the time of that disaster mm-hmm. that have the best systems, the best controls, the best, um, you know, kind of mechanisms to help those that are vulnerable and need. Yeah. You know, you don't – what happens is a lot of nonprofits just get established. You know, give to my charity. I'm going to get oh, yeah. soup and diapers to the, you know, people in need. And at the end of the day, they're really not doing that. Um, they're not really on the ground. They don't have systems to deploy at scale. Mm-hmm. And so we generally work with the big organizations like Red Cross, American Red Cross, and working with um, – uh, Salvation Army and a lot of the community foundations that are in these areas that have been impacted. Yeah, by that's disasters. great to hear because you know you mentioned a moment ago that giving can be spontaneous. It's never more spontaneous than after <laughs> a disaster. Know. I know. You just react. You see a picture on TV and you want to do something, 
And, boy, I get hit with tons of mail. Yes. And I don't know these organizations. One thing I've always told people is just never give to that organization. If you want to give to it, go to their website. Right. But that link could be some phony organization. Who knows? This is exactly yeah. right. Yeah, we put our – we put the organizations that we have vetted – right up on our website immediately after these disasters happen. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so that's that people have a trusted source. Now, take a different kind of cause. Let's say I was interested in saving the oceans. Would you advise me on what organizations and who are the best organizations to save the oceans, or is it just there? We do not take an opinion on one charity over another. Mm-hmm. Um, for... Certain donors at a, at a certain size of an account, we do have relationship managers who might work with them to do research on a number of organizations that, fo- that are focused on saving the ocean, mm-hmm. but we're not going to direct you to one or another. We're going to say these are some of the organizations that we're aware of. We may do a visit with them to the nonprofit, you know, get measures and metrics and help them think through kind of who's driving, you know, the most effective strategy to save our oceans. You know, you mentioned a moment ago that when people put money into a donor advised fund, they can have that money, earn more money in a tax free way. Do most people keep it in a money market fund or do they invest it? Well, we have the default is actually a conservative income bond. So I think we've been we've trying to get more intentional and trying to get to people to invest the money. Uh, even if it's only short term because they're just particularly during the last 10 years in the bull market we've enjoyed. And that's that's generally been working to allow people to accumulate assets in their account, additional mm-hmm. getting additional return. Um, but money market, yes. I think a lot of people are – I have I just want to make sure this money is liquid so that I can donate it to the charities that I care about. Speaking of investments, do you have impact investments as an option? We do. We mm-hmm. actually have about a billion dollars in impact <laughs> some form of impact strategy at Fidelity Charitable. So we actually offer, I think, four or five impact pools um, that people can take advantage of to invest it. And then uh, advisors work with some of our donors to help them with setting up impact funds and making investments in their communities in form of recoverable grants, which is a uh, something we've gotten really good at doing, which yeah. is allowing people to borrow from their their DAFs to give to the community, um, and generally it's an interest-free loan that comes back to the DAF if certain metrics are met. You know, there's so many organizations that are out there, 1.7 million, as you mentioned, and hundreds of thousands that are active in receiving money from Fidelity. You've been trying to sort of think about how to organize that some and have done it around the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Talk a little bit about those and what you're trying to do to try to format this in a way that we can digest it. Yeah, so I think... The UN Sustainable Development Goals are probably the best shot we're going to ever have at saving and addressing every issue facing the world. And the fact that you could get all the countries, including the U.S., Mm -hmm. to adopt them in 2015 and outline measures and metrics around each one of them is just unbelievable. It really so, is. And, I'm, and, and as you know, a lot of corporations now mm-hmm. have, a, have you know selected different uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals for their employee base to support. A lot of the nonprofits around the world are identifying with particular goals. So if you care about women and jobs or women in poverty or clean water, you know, this particular nonprofit will have, you know, we're Sustainable Development Goal 14 or whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just an amazing way for the world to look at trying to achieve some level of not perfection, but excellence. And we set a goal of 2030, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, 10 years away. And if you talk to people that are behind this, I think people feel like there is nothing bad that can come from this. This Mm -hmm. is 
all very, very positive. And I've been very impressed with the work that um, has been done around measures, you know, and how to track this and how to report on this. And that's only going to get better with Mm -hmm. time. So we're, we try to make that information available to our Fidelity Charitable donors who care about this. You know, it's been a much more broadly publicized outside of the U.S. I think just really in the last couple of years, the U.S. has started to really recognize the opportunity Mm -hmm. with the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals. So I'm encouraged that that momentum is going to continue to accelerate. Yeah, it's really taken a lot of chaos and brought (laughs) some coherence to it where you can talk about it in verticals and really have a discussion. It's really done a wonderful job along those lines. It is amazing. It is amazing. Let's talk about some of the trends. And boy, there are a lot of generational shifts that are driving this transformation in philanthropy. And that might be most pronounced between the way uh, baby boomers give and the way millennials look at their giving. What have you observed? Well, I mean, millennials are the most generous generation I think we've ever seen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they they volunteer, they work for companies that stand for a purpose, they have um, a lot of intention about how they see the world. And so their giving is a lot of generosity, very spontaneous. I think that we will, as they come into wealth, and they're, you know, they're just starting to come into wealth, that you'll see enormous amount of increase in philanthropy. Now, they're not necessarily going to do it in traditional ways. I think that's what we've got to be mindful of and understand, like, what platforms they're going to use and make sure that we stay aligned at Fidelity Charitable with their their preferences and how they want to do their giving. Yeah. But boomers, very generous as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of our clients actually are boomers, and we are – most of our donors are boomers. And so we are very um, – you know, attentive and understanding of their need to to drive social change as well. And I find the millennials to be very optimistic, aren't they? I mean, they feel that they can change anything, and they got their posses, and they're going to activate, and they're going to get some things done. And they never saw that. It was much more solitary as a boomer. (laughs) Here it's more inclusive. I'm bringing everybody along with with me on this cause. They believe in community, and I have two millennial children, so I'm well aware of how they think about bringing their peer set to the things that they care about to yeah. try to solve these issues. And they, and they are optimistic, and that's, that's fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> it beats the alternative. I, I, I would agree. Uh, Pam, did you detect any changes um, in the way donors went about their charitable giving, their strategy as a result of tax reform? So I'm still not willing to say definitively that tax reform from 2017 has impact philanthropy giving. And that largely is because the only data that we've had so far is the data from 2018 mm-hmm. in terms of how much giving. And giving went up. I know I know there's an inflation-adjusted um, concern with whether it did go down as a result of tax reform. But what we find at Fidelity Charitable is that 60% of giving is done in the last four to six weeks of the year. And as we all know from last year, we had a pretty rocky stock market those last three years, three weeks, excuse me, three weeks. Um, We had a very rocky stock market those last three weeks of 2018, which we do believe impacted people's willingness to be philanthropic and be charitably inclined. So – and we've seen again – now, again, I can only speak from from our – my team's perspective, but that we've had the granting is up 30 percent. So as you mentioned, we're at 6.7. We think we'll be at $7 billion. And that's up from 5.2 last year, which was a record. We're still seeing people continuing to replenish their accounts. So, you know, it could be just donor advised funds growing in popularity. It could be that it's a they're using the bunching strategy, which is giving every other year to their accounts, but then taking the standard deduction, which was doubled, as you know, in tax reform from 2017 in the in the other years. So there's there's still a lot to be kind of dissected. Yeah. 
I was just wondering, is it healthy in a way that donor-advised funds allow individuals to support organizations around that 12-month cycle as opposed to in lumps like at the end of the year? I work for a lot of nonprofit organizations, I and I remember February and March and April could be pretty abysmal because there were no contributions coming in. I just wondered if there was a more even distribution because of the way these funds are set up and the way the allocations can be made across the uh, the whole calendar year. I think that – well, first I would say that nonprofits, again, using technology, have become much more targeted in their campaigning. Mm-hmm. So they they – very easily now know who cares about the issues that they're focused on trying to solve. And so they're much more intentional in terms of how they target donors, which is a wonderful thing. So you're, you know, you're likely matching up people with causes that they really care about already, which is, um, you know, which is, which is huge progress as opposed to just shotgunning, you know, Mm -hmm. emails, letters, whatever, solicitations out. Um, I do think that there is this kind of steady stream of flow. I mean, as I said on the, you know, there's a lot of activity at the end of the year, but mostly that's on the contribution side. Right. We've seen really healthy grant making during the course of the whole year, which I think is, you know, what we tell nonprofits is that if you're getting a contribution or a grant from a donor advice fund, you know they have other assets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a great target for you. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask you about that. What advice do you have for nonprofits? Because, I mean, oh. you're telling me you're going to give about $7 billion away in grants. You're the biggest, but you're just one of the donor advised funds. And I know a lot of nonprofits who are probably saying, how do I get some of that? What do I need to do? What would you advise yeah, them? Yeah, so we really work hard to educate nonprofits on donor advised funds, how to work with donors that um, are using donor advised funds for their grant making. We have webinars. We have a lot of information on mm-hmm. our website. You know, there's a lot of myths out there. I mean, I've heard myths like we can't solicit anybody who has a donor advised fund. Ninety-seven percent of the monies that flow from Fidelity Charitable to the nonprofits have a name and address on them, mm-hmm. just like a check or you know an application that's filled out in connection with the credit card usage. So those people are they should be solicited just like. Any other, right. <laughs> any other yeah. giver, and the thank and you letter should not go to you. No, it go to and them. it does occasionally go to me, <laughs> which is does. frustrating. Yeah, because yeah, then you have to try to call the nonprofit to say, no, you shouldn't be thanking me. You should be thanking the family that sent this. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a lot that nonprofits can do, and we're constantly trying to work with them. We've set up a. Um, we now are serving them directly on our on our phones. I know yesterday we had record volumes, and a lot of it was nonprofits just calling to make sure we had updated addresses and checking in on grants, oh, and yeah. we try to make that service very uh, flawless. Women have always been at the table when it comes to charitable giving, but they're there now more with their own checkbooks. What is the impact of that on the sector? I think it's only positive news because women generally are very philanthropic. They are – they even though they may not have been writing checks, they were always involved in the decisions. That's right. Most of the donors that we talk to will say, you know, my wife's very involved in this. Work with her to to make sure that we're aligned in terms of where we want to do our giving. And and now they'll have the wealth associated with that. So it provides for, a, I think, a lot of optimism for the future in terms of um, increased giving yeah. across this country. Do they give in a different way, do you see, in terms of taking different considerations, in terms of the way they – they make their giving, or so again, more intentional. Yeah, um, they want to do the research first. They want to know about the organization, particularly for you know for significant grants. Um, like they buy a product. That's right. They check all these reviews out. They do. They will actually. They'll, they'll you know they're likely to go and do the research and talk to people, maybe visit the nonprofit to get more familiar with the cause and the work that they're doing, and get behind it. Then also volunteer their time. Mm-hmm. 
Fidelity Charitable, which had been based in Boston, is now headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. Tell us a little bit about the corporate culture at Fidelity Charitable, um, how you go about hiring and getting the right people on board, and what makes it such a special place in which to work. Fidelity Charitable is an amazing place to work. So we're based in North Carolina, but we have offices in Westlake, Texas. We have offices in Boston. We have offices all really around the country. And the culture is a really important component of, of this this group and this team in the sense that, you know, everybody comes up, comes in every day fired up to about the mission, you know, mm-hmm. to make giving. I mean, our North Star is to make it's easier to give away money so that there's more money given away. And so we have people on the phone talking to people all around the country who are, you know, invested in a particular charity, and they always want to share the information about what that charity does. They get so excited, you know, and they try to – it's infectious. And Mm -hmm. I think we are really focused on trying to make sure that the money gets to the charities really quickly. I mean, we try to turn things around in a very short period of time. One of the things I tell nonprofits, back to nonprofit advice, is please sign up to use ETF, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so much of this is check-driven, and you were talking about disasters – you know, you can send a bunch of checks to Red Cross, but nobody can get to it if you're sending over the Community Foundation in Houston. Nobody can get to it because, you know, there's a hurricane and the, everything is flooded. So we're we're really trying to um, make sure that, you know, we're, we're, we're serving everybody's interests as quickly as we can. And, you know, the culture is really, I think, very collegial, very collaborative. Um, you know, we, you have a little bit of an ability to come work for a you know, a charitable organization with a really strong mission, but also being a great community of Fidelity Investments. Yeah. And that's uh, that's best, a really – Best of both worlds, it's, you think. It yeah. is. It's a, it's a remarkable place. And I've left – I moved away from Boston to go down to North Carolina to be part of it. Do you do anything to shape culture or influence the culture? Is there any particular behavior that you try to set an example that you hope uh... – Well, we're very much um, listening to the voice of our associates. Mm-hmm. So uh, we – you know, if I, I, I have a meeting today – uh, with the whole company, I will ask them, what do they want to hear from me? Yeah. Right. So it's about, you know, them telling us how we need, you know, to, sh- to educate them and keep them updated. We spend a lot of time doing surveys. We're doing a survey right now. If mm-hmm. anybody's listening, hopefully they're going to take the survey that just gives a quick update on the culture and how they're doing and how engaged they are. We have very high engagement scores. Um, but again, a lot of it comes back to the mission. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's two-way communication yeah. in every sense of the word. Let me close with this, Pam. You're giving out $7 billion in grants or so uh, to 150, 200,000 organizations, whatever. You have considerable influence in the sector. How do you leverage that influence to help make the sector more efficient, more effective, and create greater impact? Transparency. We want to try to make sure that everybody knows the good work that's being done by the, our donors, the good work that's being done in terms of investing in, um, being able to always meet the donors' expectations, um, understanding the philanthropic sector, kind of what the trends are, investing trends, giving trends, contribution trends. Um, and most importantly, I think, trying to provide joy in the world as a result of the philanthropy that our donors are doing. Having them have a sense of joy and happiness that comes from helping their community, their country, their world be a better place for all. Well, that's so nice to hear because you don't hear enough of that in terms of where we focus on the problem and not the joy that we are getting from giving and also people are getting from receiving. And that's a nice way to end. Well, Pam Norley, the president of Fidelity Charitable, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What is some of the information you have on that website? You mentioned some of it. And if listeners are interested in opening an account, what do they need to do? Uh, it takes five minutes. Go in to fidelitycharitable.org, uh, and you can just put in your name and social security number, and 
you're and send five thousand dollars. <laughs> you can set it up and then fund it later. But uh, it's quite easy. I've been been able to accomplish it in five minutes and doing some of the tutorials I've done with colleagues across across the country. Well, thanks, Pam. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. TechnoServe is a leader in harnessing the power of the private sector to help people lift themselves out of poverty. Impact Matters, an organization that rates nonprofits based upon their impact, has rated TechnoServe the number one nonprofit in cost effectiveness when it comes to reducing poverty. And here to tell us about how they do it, it's a pleasure to have the president and CEO of TechnoServe, Will Warshower. Good evening, Will, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Happy to be here, Denver. You know, many listeners may not be familiar with TechnoServe. How and when did the organization get started, and what's your mission? Uh, you're right. We're one of the best kept secrets in international development. Uh, we were founded 51 years ago uh, to provide business solutions to poverty. So our founder, Ed Bullard, uh, had that insight, and that was a radical notion 50 years ago. Uh, people didn't talk about profits and development in the same sentence. Uh, it's become uh, the middle of the mainstream now, but uh, we were one of the first to work in that area. Um, and we have grown. We're working in 29 countries, uh, reaching millions of people every year, uh, working with small farmers because most of the world's poor earn their living through agriculture, and also working with uh, entrepreneurs and uh, helping people uh, get jobs and the various ways that people earn more and become prosperous. You know, there's a tendency, Will, to look at governments and foreign aid as the key drivers to lifting people out of poverty. But increasingly, business is becoming more important. In fact, would it be fair to say that it has become the key driver? Absolutely. And if you look at the statistics, you will see uh, a long time ago in most emerging markets, uh, foreign aid became eclipsed by direct foreign investment. And about two years ago, that even became true for the continent of Africa, where there's more investment dollars flowing in than aid dollars. So the smart people that are thinking about aid and development are thinking about how they can leverage that private sector investment, dynamism, and energy to drive development. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, let's talk about that work. There are three major elements of how you go about doing it. The first is empowering these small-scale farmers and entrepreneurs with the skills and knowledge they're going to need. Now, how do you do how do you provide that? Yeah, whether it's a small farmer or a small business person, we are really uh, trying to help them in three ways. And I should preface that by saying that Although we work with some of the poorest people in the world, we don't give anything away for free. We're even against subsidies. Mm -hmm. And that sounds a little strange, perhaps. But the reason for that is uh, if we can help people get into commercial relationships that really work on straight commercial terms – 
that's what will last over time, and that's what will scale up. So that is our approach. Uh, a lot of the skills building involves uh, business skills, whether it's a small farmer uh, or a small business person, uh, gaining those basic skills so that he or she can uh, understand and run their business effectively, and then various technical skills, uh, ranging from everything to growing coffee uh, to uh, making soap or, or other products that they may be manufacturing. Do you also help them get access to capital? We do. We don't provide provide any of it directly, mm-hmm. uh, but we uh, do uh, help them uh, access it from a range of institutions, microfinance institutions, uh, credit unions and banks uh, around the world. And we often will advocate at those institutions uh, and help them perhaps develop specialized products. An agricultural loan, for example, can only be paid back after harvest, right. things like that. Yeah, yeah, you're really a catalyst in so many different ways. That's what we aim to be, exactly. And again, it goes with our mission of a focus on long-term impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are a classic sort of teach-them-to-fish organization. Yeah. So that's why we don't want to provide the financing we want to provide. Uh, we want to find commercial uh, organizations to do that. That makes sense. A second important aspect of this work is to strengthen market connections. Now, what's often missing, and what are you able to provide? Uh, yes, and and this is an area where I think uh, the world is changing fast in a way that really advantages the, the small farmer and the small business person. Um, we think about this in terms of a concept called shared value. Mm-hmm. This was put forward by a couple of Harvard Business School professors in a seminal article about a decade ago, uh, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer. Mark's been on the show. Great. And um, they had the insight that there are a growing set of opportunities – where the business opportunity actually lines up with the social opportunity. So we work with some of the great corporations in the world, uh, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Nespresso, and so on, but we don't ask them to be philanthropic. We take them a hard business case and say, this is great for your bottom line, and by the way, in executing this, you're going to take thousands or tens of thousands of of families uh, out of poverty in a way that they can stay out. And uh, so that is our approach to them. Uh, take an example of, uh, of a company which is sourcing um, agricultural commodities. It used to be that uh, those companies saw that as a zero-sum game. If I can buy what I'm buying 10% cheaper, I win. Mm-hmm. The smarter companies have understood for some time now that if the family that is growing what you need to buy, you may be buying coffee, you may be buying mangoes, whatever it is you're buying, if that family that grows it for you is living in poverty, that is actually a core business risk for you. Because uh, it may not be there when you need to come back and buy it again next year. So you, as a business person, have a business interest in helping that family become prosperous. Yeah. And you just said a moment ago, tens of thousands. So my mind jumps to the fact that you have to assist with farmer aggregation to try to get all these farmers working together so there is a supply that's readily accessible to these major corporations. Absolutely key. We we look at a a lot of market failures and try to help solve for those. And you just mentioned a really important one. Um, And, uh, you know, when you think about a lot of crops that uh, consumers around the world enjoy, uh, many of them are majority grown by smallholder farmers. Mm -hmm. About 75% of the world's cacao for chocolate, uh, 70% of the world's specialty coffee, all grown by these small farmers. So they 
they need to come together, what used to be called a cooperative, or we, we now refer to it more often as a farmer business organization, where they can come together uh, they can then get better terms of trade. They can access inputs that they need to buy, and they can trade with some of these big multinationals because they get to the scale that they need to get to. Mm-hmm. And the third and final leg of the stool is to improve the business environment for small-scale producers. Tell us about that. Well, it's really looking at the whole market system. It doesn't make sense to help a farmer uh, learn how to grow more of a certain crop if uh, there is no good way to get it to market or no good way to connect them uh, with an exporter. So it's really looking at the whole business environment. Um, I can tell you a, a short story that, that illustrates yeah, the, the power of this. Um, many people don't know that Coca-Cola is the largest juice company in the world. Uh, Coke has been selling more and more juice to a growing middle class in the continent of Africa. But uh, it, they were uh, sourcing all of the fruit for that juice they were importing it all. It was a classic sort of market failure. So mm-hmm. imagine this container of fruit coming into the port from India. They would literally be driven by these African farmers sitting on the side of the road mm-hmm. with fruit on, on wooden tables selling it. It was, a, it was a terrible failure. So we entered into a partnership with the Gates Foundation and Coke to address that. And we worked with about 65,000 small farmers across East Africa, uh, working on them improving their fruit production. Uh, we then worked with a number of fruit processing companies. So, again, the enabling business environment, it, it, because why was Coke importing it in the first place? Uh, it wasn't that they didn't care about African farmers, but they needed a certain volume and they needed a certain quality and they needed that reliability to, to do their production. So by having these farmers trained, by aggregating them into farmer business organizations, by enabling local processing companies to process to the standard that Coke need, Coke is now able to source all of the uh, fruit for all of the Minute Maid juice that it sells in Africa from African farmers. And those farmers who are selling to Coke saw their income from fruit uh, more than double in the in the, in the course of That's this. a fantastic story. And you really have to look at those different parts of the supply chain. Sometimes people tend to focus on the commodity, but there's a whole system that has to be in place if you're going to go from A to Z. And if a piece of it's not working, then you don't get the benefits you're seeking. Absolutely right. Hey, well, in what ways is TechnoServe different from other international development uh, nonprofit organizations in terms of your composition of staff and the way you go about your business. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Denver. I have uh, spent my career working in international development. I was a Peace Corps volunteer uh, right out of college, and uh, so I've had the privilege of serving in a number of uh, really high-performing um, international development organizations. What is really different about TechnoServe is the, uh, the, the, the staff, the background and quality of the staff. Uh, most of our staff come to us from the private sector. Mm-hmm. Many of them come from top-tier management consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain. And so they bring a, a world-class ability for analysis. And uh, so what struck me when I joined TechnoServe uh, over five years ago now was the depth of analysis up front, the 60-page deep analysis mm. of the mango sector in northern Mozambique or the global coffee opportunity. Um, and that drives much, much better project selection and project design because it's based on a, a really deep understanding of these uh, markets and market dynamics 
uh, and, and local culture. So I think if I had to call out one thing, I think it is the business background of the staff and their ability then to, to sit at a table with a Coca-Cola or with an espresso and have a really credible uh, business case uh, developed. Well, what's the secret of recruiting them? I mean, we always talk about compensation, and I don't—I know they do pretty well at McKinsey and Bain compared to the nonprofit. How do you uh, navigate that? Well, Denver, you know, I have a, a belief that people uh, at the end of the day have a deep uh, need for their work to mean something. Mm-hmm. And so some people tell themselves stories. You hear a lot of people in Silicon Valley saying, we're making the world a better place yeah. because you can order a pizza with one click instead right. of two clicks. Yeah. So I think that's a human need. And I think we can offer that. I think people come to work for us. Uh, they want meaning in their work. And they believe, I think, very deeply in our approach. We've got demonstrated, uh, detailed impact. I think they appreciate that. They appreciate how well their business skills can be used when they're working for us. They just were working for a consulting firm making a, a business case uh, for somebody selling widgets. Mm-hmm. But now they're making a business case that can really take tens of thousands of small farmers out of poverty per I do not drink orange juice, but I do drink coffee. So I want you to tell us about Nespresso and how you partner with them to build a more sustainable coffee industry in East Africa. Yeah, this is one of our uh, most uh, fruitful partnerships. Um, And uh, again, it's based on this concept of of shared value uh, and based also on very deep research that that TechnoServe did into the coffee sector uh, more than a decade ago. That research showed us a couple of key uh, things that, that are opportunities. One was that the global demand for what's called specialty coffee, that fancy coffee that you may get at Pete's and Starbucks and Blue Bottle and all, um, that global demand for that is growing seemingly without end, (laughs) and consumers are willing to pay for that. Uh, So there's an opportunity there. Also, um, a farmer on a very small piece of land is capable with the right uh, training of growing some of the world's best and therefore most valuable coffee. So uh, we're always looking for an opportunity for value addition. The idea of shared value is win-win. The Mm -hmm. company wins, and so does the farmer in this case. And uh, when we work with small farmers on coffee, we can help them increase their yields of every tree by 50 to 100%. And when we help them uh, improve the quality of it, generally through locally processing it after they pick it off the tree – uh, we can help them get a price premium, which sometimes is as high as 40 or 50 percent over what they were getting before. So you can imagine if you're a small farmer and you've got this small coffee farm and suddenly each tree is producing twice as many beans and each bean is worth 50 percent more than it was before, you, the, the economics of your family uh, change quite substantially. Now, um, we've done this over 10 years and many countries with Nespresso and uh, they are they have some something they call a AAA program, thinking about taking care of farmers. But they're a company that has understood this and bought into it at the highest level. And I've spent time with their senior management team, and they get it, and they invest in it in a way that's good for their business and great for these small farmers. Well, that leads me into, and what I mentioned in the opening, uh, TechnoServe focused not just on impact, but cost-effective impact. On average, what is your ROI for every dollar spent? On average, our ROI is over three. So, and I want to be clear about this uh, because this is a the this is looking at the cost of a project, and this includes every dime of cost, mm-hmm. every administrative dime, and everything else. So, all the costs of running a project. 
and then looking at the benefits, which are the extra income earned by our clients. So if we're looking at a farmer, what we do is we look at a farmer the next village over who we did not work with, and that allows us to control for things like weather or like global Mm -hmm. crop price changes. So we're doing a really thorough job to try to isolate the impact that our project had and get rid of any exogenous factors. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a big range in there. I recently visited a project that had an ROI of 20 to 1. We're we're thrilled about that, obviously. Those are the ones you scale up, usually. Absolutely. Proof of concept, and then you move it around. And we've got some that are below 1. And Mm -hmm. and some of those are pilots that you wouldn't expect, but some of them are just bad projects, and we learn from those as well. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier about impact, since there are no uh, handouts and there are no subsidies, you do have an impact after you leave because you've built a sustainable model. Well, this is the most important thing and um, a a bit of a hobby horse of mine, if you'll allow me. Uh, Everyone who who cares about international development, everybody who works in the field uh, wants sustainable development. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to teach people to fish. We want to have impact that lasts. You and your listeners may be shocked to know that that is almost never measured. Uh, and so um, we are, uh, with the help of some uh, forward-looking donors, we are increasingly measuring that. We are hiring external research agencies who are going back to find clients that we stopped working with five years previously. And we have great data and evidence of what where they were five years ago, the benefits that they got. And the question really is, what's happened in the intervening five years? Did those persist or not? You mentioned coffee farmers in East Africa. That was a recent research. And um, I was uh, sort of holding my breath. I, I pledged to make all that data public. We do make all our yeah, impact yeah, data yeah. public, our research data. Um, but you still oh, hold your breath. <laughs> but I still, you still hold your breath. Overwhelmingly, those farmers are still uh, doing the practices that we taught them, still realizing the yield gains and the price gains uh, that they they had five years ago. Uh, We've got research in the field, going into the field soon to look at entrepreneurship programs in Latin America Mm -hmm. through the same lens. But um, there is not enough of this done. It's nuts. It's, yeah. it's a huge gap. Uh, if if you as a private individual want to give a dollar to a charity, uh, if you're like me, you want to give it somewhere where it's going to provide impact, not just while that project's running, but for years afterwards. And we don't have the data uh, in this field yet. And so um, I am a real advocate for more and more of this kind of research so that whether you're the Gates Foundation or whether you're the private individual sending in a $20 check, yeah. uh, you ought to be targeting that money for intervention which are proven to have long-term lasting impact. Unfortunately, that's just the way we are. You know, we don't do a lot for prevention. You know, <laughs> we do it when somebody gets sick, we spend a lot of money, and then we live in that moment, and then when that moment's gone, we stop tracking it, and we don't see what the aftermath of it is. It's just sort of the way we are, and it's not good. Well, look, I mean, there's there's some administrative reasons. Development is often funded through uh, projects. Right. And so often there's plenty of funding in that project cycle to do research. The donors all care about this and care about research. Um, and so administratively, some of them struggle to say, well, I want to go back and look at something that happened five years ago, but that project's over. How do I do that? That's right. But th- that's a solvable problem, obviously. Well, sounds like you've solved it. <laughs> you know, you've received support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among others, to harness emerging technologies for the benefit of the rural poor. Which ones are showing the most promise? 
Yeah, look, it won't be news to your listeners that technology is uh, changing things so fast. You talked about farmer aggregation, the ability, um, you know, everybody's got a mobile phone and Mm -hmm. the ability to do uh, more virtual aggregation uh, and tie farmers together uh, through technology is dramatically changing things, particularly when that's linked with mobile money. Yeah. Uh, Farmers can now be paid for their crops. They used to have to get on a bus ride for two days, get paid in cash, and have a very dangerous journey home with a backpack full of cash. Uh, They now can be paid in real time uh, Mm -hmm. over their mobile phones. So that's been dramatic. We're actively exploring uh, a lot of technologies around distance learning. A lot of the training that we do of entrepreneurs and small farmers is done in person. Uh, If we can move some of that onto the mobile phone, we can be more cost-efficient and reach more people. Yeah, you've opened up uh, TechnoServe Labs in Silicon Valley. We do. We have a small lab in Silicon Valley now run by a lifelong technologist and um, it's we're having fantastic conversations with a range of technology companies Uh, there's a lot of interesting work going on around remote sensing which is another area we're uh, quite engaged in which should allow us to focus our field forces uh, even better than they are today you know you work with small entrepreneurs but we've been talking a lot about the work you do with small farmers what is climate change doing and the impact that it's having on them i know some of them probably contribute to it in part but what's that impact been and what can you do to mitigate it that's a huge issue. Uh, the small farmer is on the front lines of climate change, uh, often the most affected by it, often with the fewest tools in his or her toolbox to uh, address it. And uh, I visit a lot of farms, small farms around the world, and I can't recall the last time I visited one where in one way or another, the farmer was not talking about climate change. Uh, there's a number of exciting things uh, that we can do, and I think both for adaptation and mitigation. So there's a whole uh, area called climate smart agriculture Mm -hmm. uh, is an area that we're pursuing. There are improved seeds, which are drought resistant, which we can help farmers access. Uh, Coffee is a wonderful crop for this because the best practice for coffee is planting a lot of shade trees. So our farmers have planted over a million trees, which is just a good practice for growing coffee and also helpful uh, for this problem. Um, there are, but there's there's a, a lot of work to do, yeah. and um, uh, the farmers, the small farmers, a poor small farmer uh, in Africa uh, likely does does not have access to a couple of uh, 19th century technologies like tractors and mm-hmm. like irrigation, which are often too expensive for that farmer to access. So we've got uh, a long way to go, but it is a big priority for us. Every year. Uh, about 10 million young people enter the workforce in Africa, yet over maybe 60 percent don't find jobs. There's this youth bulge, and I think it provides, and you think it provides, I'm sure, a tremendous opportunity as well as a tremendous challenge depending on what's going to happen. Give us your assessment and what TechnoServe is doing to serve this population. Yeah, it's one of the groups we focus on, and you're absolutely right, and and you see it not only in Africa but in other parts of the world. You have about 12 million young people entering the workforce in India Uh, every year as well. Uh, We have been very active in this space. Uh, We ran a large uh, project in Africa with support from the MasterCard Foundation, which focused on rural youth, uh, helping them uh, come together and gain both uh, life skills and then business skills. And uh, some went on to be employed. Many of them went on to band together and start small businesses. 
But I, I, you know, I'm I'm recently back from a trip I took to India, and our team in India is running a very creative project uh, focused on young people from uh, low-income families and helping them get jobs. And the, there are uh, different tiers of universities in India. The, the lower tiers are where poorer people send their kids. The schools are not great. Mm-hmm. And so this is a poor family that's scrimping and saving, probably the first person from their family to go to school. And the problem is that you're seeing rates of only about 5% of graduates from these schools getting formal employment. Hmm. So it's a bargain that's really not being kept. Yep. Our team in India um, looked at the various things that were being done and through a lot of uh, creativity and iteration have launched a program called uh, Campus to Corporates, which is uh, helping these young people get entry-level white-collar jobs. So uh, they're working at banks, they're working at uh, insurance agencies, they're doing payroll processing, they're doing compliance, things like that. And we work with them for uh, a year during their final year of university. And we are seeing 75% of them get placed into these jobs. It's dramatic. And a year later, uh, 74% of them are still in that job or a similar job. And just to give you a flavor of this, I met a young woman who I will not soon forget uh, named Taslim. Taslim uh, comes from a poor Muslim family. They live on, a, in, on the outskirts of Mumbai, seven of them in a one-room house. Mm-hmm. And she was at this university. Uh, it's a conservative family, so she had to really fight with her parents to get to go to university at all. She then had to fight to uh, get to take part in this campus to corporate program that she took part in. She got a job working at a local uh, bank um, helping trace lost credit cards and doing some sales. And she was uh, three months into her job when I met her. And she stood and, and, and proudly described all this to me. And uh, her family income has doubled hmm. as a result of that entry-level job. And she told me that in the uh, th- she's eligible for a bonus. And in her third month on the job, her numbers were so good that she earned a 50% bonus on top of her salary. And she started to tear up when she told me about it. And, and frankly, I started to tear up uh, <laughs> listening to it. The pride that she had, how she must be regarded in her family, the difference she's wow. able to make to her siblings, and the fact that once you're in an organization like that and into a job like that, you've got a pathway up. Yeah, sure. So Taslim um, is – I see great things for Taslim. And uh, I'm going to try to find her every time I'm in Mumbai and see how she's doing. But it's, it's those sorts of uh, opportunities. That, uh, that we try to create. And that's really how I think about uh, TechnoServe. Um, I think it's Nick Kristoff that said, you know, intelligence is universal, but opportunity is not. Mm-hmm. We are really in the business of providing opportunities. We recognize the agency, the industriousness, the, the smarts of these people. What they don't have is opportunity. Yeah. We're cracking the door open for them. And people like Taslim or these fruit farmers who are now selling to Coca-Cola or the coffee farmers that now are able to sell at better prices to Nespresso, they are walking through that door and continuing to walk and doing it all. Great story. Let me close with this, Will. The world has made dramatic progress in recent decades, lifting people out of poverty, which is now below 10 percent, as defined by the United Nations. What do we need to do to be vigilant to assure that it doesn't start moving back up again? And what needs to be done now that will reduce it even further? 
Yeah, you're right, uh, Denver, and and a lot of people are are not aware of the dramatic progress that's happened over the last couple of decades where we've seen more people come out of poverty than at any other time in the history of humankind. So on the one hand, it's enormously encouraging. On the other hand, you have more than 750 million people still living in what's defined as abject poverty, Mm -hmm. 3 billion below uh, the, the traditional poverty line. So there is so much left to do. Uh, I think we are making great strides uh, with women. And, um, you know, you're never going to develop if half of your population (laughs) is not treated (laughs) properly and not given the same opportunities as men. So that is a a lever that we need to push on to drive progress. You mentioned climate change earlier, and that's obviously a massive threat to all of this. Um, You know, there's a healthy debate out there. Some people really uh, want to see government uh, as being in the lead. On this, unfortunately, uh, the track record of a lot of developing country governments is not very good. Um, we hope that they can create an enabling environment largely. Mm. Um, and uh, we believe strongly in the power of business uh, to do this, particularly where you find those areas for shared value where good business can can result in good development as well. Um, but it's um, it's going to take a, a continued focus, uh, a continued investment, continued creativity. I think technology will continue to unlock new opportunities we haven't thought of. Uh, we're beginning to use big data in, mm-hmm. in international development uh, uh, problems in a way that we we never had the opportunity to do before. So um, lots of challenges and opportunities in front of us. Stay tuned. Well, Will Warshower, the president and CEO of TechnoServe, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people find additional information about the organization, the work that you do, and maybe provide some financial support to help move it forward? Yeah, uh, you can visit our website, which is uh, www.technoserve.org. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on all the social media. Um, But yes, uh, come and look us up. Well, thanks, Will. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show, and thanks for a great conversation. Thank you, Denver. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.